This podcast features the writers Evie Wilde and David Soleil, two of Granta's best young British novelists, who read and were in conversation with Ted Hodgkinson from Granta as part of this year's World's Literature Festival in Norwich. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, uh, and welcome to uh, the Hull Street Norwich Cathedral for uh, the third evening of our set of events for Wales 2013. Very really pleased to welcome you this evening, and uh, thank you for waiting uh, for a slightly delayed start this evening. Our timing was around a bit awry. Uh, fortunately, it's before you do it, I've enjoyed the chance to set aside the cathedral. Um, I'm very, very pleased to welcome back Granta this evening. We've done an event, I think, every year for the last four years now. Three, four years. It feels a bit like a mild form of, a pleasurable form of family reunion without any of the downsides of family reunions. Um, and it's particularly pleasurable because this evening we have guests from Japan and China who are also involved with Granta as publishers of Granta editions in those countries. So it's a real pleasure to bring um, various countries and various parts of the Granta group together. This evening we're going to hear um, two writers from the Best of Young Rich Novelists for, I tried to memorise the acronym and it just didn't work, and E.B. Wilder here for, um, we're going to hear from E.B. Wilder and David Sale. Um, they're both writers um, of immense accomplishment as well as promise, and um, I'm going to let Ted, who will be our host this evening, who is Granta's um, kind of web mogul, I call you in my head. <laughs> I don't know if that's the proper job to You've got the mogul bit right now. Anything electronic, web based, new writing, emerging and exciting uh, kind of falls, falls to you, I think. Um, but it's a real pleasure to hear both of these writers, and I think they are um, lists and best ofs are always are controversial on all sorts of different cross currents and levels. The main thing is that with the list that we currently have, or just had, there are writers there that, we, that I know that I want to read because of the people and the way that they've been selected. So I'm delighted to welcome two of those writers this evening, and ladies and gentlemen, and introduce them. Thank you so much, Chris, for that lovely introduction. If this is a, um, a family reunion, then I, I've never looked forward so much to having the Monopoly later on. <laughs> around, um, the least sacrilegious game Monopoly, I think. Um, welcome, everybody, and thanks for joining us today in this beautiful, light-filled room. And I'm really delighted to be here for the Norwich launch of Grant's Best Young British Novelist, which is right here. Um, if this goes well, then we might do Grant's Best of Young British Novelist Bake Off. Um, uh, I do look a bit like Sue Perkins, so we don't have to hear um, So I'm delighted to be joined today by David Saloy and Evie Wilde, um, both Grant's best young British novelists, and I think they share, um, they have certain affinities in their work. They share an ability, I think, to create an immersive physical reality, whether it's the emptied out, over-conditioned world of media and sales and David Saloy's gravely funny and painfully accurate London and the South East, or the decidedly under-air-conditioned world of unforgiving rural Australia and even wilds turned to beautiful debut after the fire, still small voice. For that novel, Evie received the John Llewellyn Rees and Betty Trask Awards and was shortlisted for the Impact and Orange Prizes. Um, they then said that she couldn't enter any more prizes because they had to let someone else have a chance. Um, <laughs> um, uh, 
She runs the uh, um, review bookshop in Peckham, and her latest novel, All the Birds Singing, is extracted in the issue. Um, it's just published and tells of a sheep farmer, um, Jake White, a solitary woman living on an island off the coast of Britain, um, menaced by a blurry canine predator and memories of working life in Australia with only her own dog, Kelly, for solace and company. Um, we'll hear her read from it in just a moment. Um, it features one of the most haunting, I should say, um, sex scenes I've ever read, um, in all of which uh, it's, um, it's quite creepy and stormy. I, I, sort of, I would recommend that you read it, but maybe in a light-filled room. Um, um, it's, um, it's also, um, I think, a novel of, sort of paradoxical lyricism at moments when you least expect it. And I wanted to just read a line from the extract in the issue. Um, it's just at the moment when the road is taking a shower, um, and it's quite a she's she, it's quite a basic shower situation. It's not a sort of lavish sort of herbalescent shower, um, but uh, the first stars are bright needles, and in the old Morton Bay fig that hangs over the tractor shed and drops nuts on the roof while I sleep, a corowan and a white galah having it out. I can hear the blood thick beat of them. I can't think of a better phrase, actually, to describe the quality of these prose at times. Blood thick, rich with family history, alive with bodily secrets, and the secrets of their characters. Um, please join me in welcoming the today. Um, this Lloyd's novel, first novel, as I mentioned, is set in the world of London sales uh, and media, and it deals with um, the principal characters, Paul Rainey, a man who sells advertising space and unravels as he attempts to escape from a relentlessly sort of transactional world. Um, so Lloyd's fiction is distinguished by its irreducibility and the way each character's life is so finely drawn um, and incrementally captured in um, painting precision that just kind of resists any attempt to um, say it in any encapsulated form. So I'm just going to read uh, a scene uh, from that novel, in fact, which is one of my favourites. This is a moment when Paul has received a rather gigantic blue um, Christmas present, um, and he's sort of powerless to have a very ungrateful response to it. Um, as he faces the horizontal blue monolith, he feels a silent disapproval of the room behind him. His mother and Mike, despite their instant loathing for each other, sorry, in, um, increasing loathing for each other, have largely sat on their writhing animosity and smiles, so as not to spoil things for everyone else. And yet, here he is, joy joylessly unimpressed by this huge blue gift, and making not the slightest effort to hide it. Quite the opposite. Sourly, he seems to be exulting in his unpleasantness. Finding a taped seam with his finger, he starts to tear, pulling the paper off in strips, slowly revealing the box. It's a TV, he says, in the tone of someone finding a ticket under their wiper. And the second novel of the incident seems to throw his voice into that of an ex-KGB officer who has lost faith in the Soviet Union, and his third spring is one of the most painfully and joyfully accurate in equal measure evocations of North London and a frayed and fraying relationship. Um, there's a moment in that novel when Catherine visits, visits James, who's very much, I suppose, the central um, character. Um, Again, just a quick um, extract from that. She told him she didn't know what she wanted or what she felt. That was why she kissed him in the kitchen last night. Kissed him properly. Just as he was leaving, her tongue is now struggling, it seemed, to obliterate its own intransigent singleness. And St. Lloyd's universe is shot through with that kind of singleness. 
Each moment of the fight is attempt to separate it from the world that intransigently and memorably, memorably belongs to. And he's going to read um, from his piece in um, the issue, which um, I believe uh, it's going to take um, an interesting form, which I'd like to talk to you I'll talk about later on. Um, but again, please join me. I'm going to read from, uh, as uh, Ted says, from the piece which was published in Toronto a couple of months ago. Um, it's from something I'm working on, which uh, has the working title of Europa, and it will take the form of a number of not exactly short stories, probably about six sort of novella length things, um, which will have sort of relations with each other. The section, the one published in Europa, probably about half of it was published, uh, concerns some um, Hungarians coming to London uh, in the present day to, uh, to do some sort of work. Um, and I'm going to read the bit where they arrive. Zoli met them at Luton Airport in a silver Mercedes. Flight would be uneventful. The plane was full, but Garbo had paid for priority boarding and they had seats together. Bolash squashed into the window seat, Garbo stretching his legs in the aisle, Emma between them, listening to her eyeball and staring at the plastic seat back a few inches from the tip of her nose. When the plane descent flattened out and the trolley approached, Garbo bought himself and Bolash cans of beer, two each, and Emma a diet coke. With barely enough space to lift the beer to his lips, Wallach concentrated on the window. There was nothing to see, except a section of wing and fierce light and the endless expanse of white fluffiness far below. He'd fall straight through it, he thought, solid as it looks. He wasn't sure now that he had understood what Garbo had meant when he said that Emma would be doing some work in London. Had he even heard him properly? The light hurt his eyes and he half lowered the plastic shutter. He folded his swollen hands in his lap and sat there. His mind snagged on the serrated whisper of her headphones, only just perceptible over the massive white noise of the labouring engines. Zoli was tall and not unhandsome, and managed a moustache without looking silly. He also had an air of slightly savage intelligence about him. He was, in fact, a fully qualified doctor, though not currently practising. It was true that there was an unhealthy puffiness to his face, a swollenness, his eyes protruding more than his ideal. But Bolas did not notice these things until he saw them intermittently in the rear view mirror. He was sitting in the back of the Mercedes with Emma, the lowered leather armrest emphatically separating them as they made their way towards London. They did so with single-minded speed, Zoli pushing a powerful car through holes in the traffic on the motorway. Holding on to the spring-hinged handle over the window, Bolas saw fleeting past the landscape somehow more thoroughly filled than any in his own country. It seemed more orderly. It was very obviously more money. Even now, in the middle of summer, everything looked fairly plump and fresh. Garbo lit a cigarette. He was sitting in the front with Zoggy, who immediately told him to put it out. Garbo apologised and pressed it into the ashtray. Still forcing the car forward, Zoggy pulled the ashtray out of its hole, lowered his window and shook it out into the loud wind. When the window was up again, he explained that he had borrowed the car from a friend of his who had a luxury limousine hire service. He promised he wouldn't smoke in it. Sorry, Garbo said again. Then he said, this is the new S-Class, yeah? Nice car. Zoli agreed vaguely. 
He looked in the rearview mirror, and for a moment, Bollage saw his swollen eyes. Dolly was in his mid-thirties, probably, only a few years older than the others. Even so, Gobble was having trouble relating to him as an equal, something he normally managed quite easily with older and more important-seeming men, a quality that was probably the source of much of whatever professional success he had enjoyed. They had made some small talk as they drove out of the airport, though even that was abruptly ended. Gobble was in the middle of saying something, and Zolly had to pay for the parking. As they headed into London, Gobble's usual effortless friendliness seemed to have faltered. Whether that was because he was simply intimidated by Zolly, or for some other reason, Bollard did not know. Seeing him shake hands with some formality in the arrivals lounge, the situation had seemed to him to be this. They had met before, but did not know each other well. Zolly and Emma, on the other hand, seemed never to have met. Gobble introduced them, again with a strange sort of formality, and Zolly was very friendly to her, a wide smile and a pair of kisses. To Bollage, obviously the minder, with his shit clothes and his muscles, he had offered only a peremptory handshake. Then he had hurried them to the short-term car park. They were in a hurry because, as Zolly said, there's one tonight, whatever that meant. What with the delay they were pressed for time, so they had first to go to the flat. Zolly, it seems, had sorted out a flat for them to stay in while they were in London. They spent some time stuck in traffic, the flow of the motorway silting up as it entered the metropolis. They were slowed by traffic lights. The air conditioning was on. Outside the tinted windows, London, what they were able to see of it, sweltered. Then there were smaller thoroughfares and more local look to things. There were neighbourhoods, parks, high streets, overflowing pubs. Smudged impressions of urban life on an electric summer evening. It went on for over an hour. Then they arrived at the flat. It was on a quiet street with a few trees in it. Small two-storey houses, all exactly the same. They waited with their luggage and duty-free while Zolly opened the front door, swearing to himself as he struggled with the unfamiliar keys. The flat was on the upper floor of a house, up some narrow stairs, at the top of which there was another struggle with the keys, and then they went in. One bedroom, white and sparsely furnished. Bollage would take the sofa in the living room, which overlooked the quiet road. On the other side of the landing, lurking mustily, was a windowless bathroom into which Emma disappeared with her wash bag as soon as they arrived. The men waited in the living room. Barbara on the sofa, Zolly pacing slowly and taking in the view from the uncurtained window, and then pacing again. And Bollard's just standing there, staring at the old lime-coloured carpet and its mass of cigarette burns and other blemishes. From a scrawl on the sofa, Garble wondered out loud whether there was someone to get something to eat. Zolly offered only an uninterested shrug. He said he didn't know the area well. Like the Mercedes, he said, he had borrowed the flat from a friend. He himself lived in another part of London. Turning back to the window, he said the high street was nearby. There'd be something there. Do you mind popping out, Gobble said to Bollash, and getting some gavats or something? Bollash looked up from the pocket. Okay. Do you want something, Gobble said. The question was addressed to Zolly, but he was still staring out the window and didn't answer. Zolly, Gobble said, slightly tentatively. Do you want something? No, he said without turning. Okay, so yeah, just get some kebabs, Gobble said. Bollage nodded. And he said, how many should I get? I don't know, I'll have one. Do you want one? Uh, yeah. And Emma might want one. Four, Gobble suggested.
are very much set in, in London and focused on characters who live in London and set whole life in cosmology. And in this novel, in this piece, I, I should say, um, you're, you're looking at London through the eyes of an outsider, someone who's coming in and experiencing it for the first time in a very new and fresh and sort of alien way. Was this, were you conscious of wanting to approach this situation? In some ways, it's been that. That one's Were you conscious of um, wanting to Like a very intense or even more intense version of the Isle of Wight. 
So there's one woman, um, Jake, living on her own on a sheep farm uh, with her dog, um, who's called Dog. And uh, something is killing her sheep at night, and she's a bit freaked out. Um, that's all you need to know. With the night outside, I closed the curtains in the kitchen and put, the, and put on the radio loud enough to drown out the skittering noises of leaves moving up the stone path. The only programme I could get was the soccer results. I listened to the names of places while I made sardines on toast. Wigan. What was Wigan like? I had a pretty strong sense of it just from its name, and it made me glad that I was not there. I fed a sardine to dog and it made me sneeze. The sitting room was cold, and so I ate under a blanket. I didn't look out the window of the dark, but I felt it there. Lonely three, Middlesbrough, nil. When I could find no other reasons for not going to bed, I turned the radio off and whistled tunelessly and loudly on my way up the stairs. On the landing, a feather fluttered in a draught. I brushed my teeth that must have scraped, must have scraped over a mouth also, because when I spat, there was an impressive amount of blood. I washed it away and blew my nose, and then rolled on an old t-shirt to sleep in. Dog collected himself at the foot of the bed, and we stared at each other a moment or two before I checked the hammer under my pillow and turned off the light. I closed my eyes so that I wasn't staring into the dark, and I tried not to take any notice of the sounds that felt, that felt unfamiliar, even though I'd heard them a million times before. A sheep's cough had always sounded just like a person's. A fox was being made love to somewhere in the woods, and her shrieks cut straight into my room. I fell asleep because I woke up from a dream where I saw myself opening the bathroom door and finding all of my sheep in there looking silently back at me. There was no colour or light in the sky, so it, so it wasn't past five. There was something sick in the air, like someone had lit a scented candle to mask a bad smell. The house was still. Dog stood by the closed door, looking at the space underneath, his hackles up and his legs straight, and stiff, his tail rigid, pointing down. And then one creak on the ceiling like somebody walked there. I held my breath and listened past the blood pumping in my ears. It was quiet and I pulled the covers up to my chin. The sheets choked loudly against themselves. Dog staying fixed on the door, a small brow escaped him. My fingernails dug into my palms. On the wall behind me came a noise like someone drawing a nail from the ceiling to the top of my bed's headboard, and stopping there, one straight, smooth and slow line. Dog slumped over to the bed and growled long and low. I lay still, felt every muscle beat in time with my heart, my back throbbed now. I had the feeling that I had bled into the bed sheets, that if I moved my back would stick to the material and pull at my skin. I thought to myself, rats, there's rats in the walls, or mice, the small ones with the little soft brown bodies, that's all it is, or a small timber releasing air or cracking, the temperature outside has dropped in the night, it's making it crack and the mice are scurrying around and scratching about, or it is the Rayburn's pipe doing its thing, the wind has changed direction. An underwater stillness, no wind or rain, not even a small owl, just a thick blanket of silence. I shut my eyes and felt the mattress creak as Dole loped up onto it, 
and weaved himself between my feet. The room settled, and I counted heartbeats. There was a quiet crackle, then silence again. And then a sound like someone driving a car into a tree, a crack and a slam that echoed, and then like hands slapping fast on the wall, and I stood up on my bed and laid like a ball, clutching a pillow in front of me, and holding the hammer up as if there was someone there to hit it with, to hit with it. Dog snapped at the air around him like it was full of flies. In the quiet that followed, dog started to howl. I lumped off the bed and hit the light switch. The door was now open, flushed to the wall like someone had stood there, blocking the doorway, observing. The corridor beyond it was dark and longer than I remembered it. Fuck you, I shouted into the corridor, breathing deep between each word. And the words I thought I could and around the words, I thought I could hear a whisper of someone speaking back to me. Dog stopped howling, let out a moan, and ran, ran into the darkness of the hallway. Nothing showed up at the end of the hall, just the window, and outside the night. I took my jeans from the floor and pulled them on as I moved down the corridor to the stairway. The light switch at the top of the stairs was not where it should have been, so I plowed into the dark and down to the kitchen. Where I found the light already on, and Dog sitting under the table with drool coming out of him and puddling on the floor. We went out the door and got into the car, started the engine, and I drove with my hands shaking against the steering wheel. I was going to drive straight into town, straight to the police station, and bang on the door. But as my heart slowed down, so did my driving, and I parked in a driveway of the field in sight of the lights of town, turned the engine off. Dog curled in the footwell of the passenger seat and shook, his eyes black and round. I rested my head on the steering wheel and breathed in and out until the still and the quiet became natural, and Dog crawled from his footwell and let me rub his ears. We'll be okay, I said to him, and he looked at me. We've got options, we're smart, right? Right? We watched the light draw through the sky in a barn owl on her final patrol, we broke up the door. Alone swimming in an empty sea. So there's this extraordinary solitude you're describing, and in the midst of that solitude, there are these spectral presences of animals. Um, dog, and she talks to dog again, that alone, that scene you described. Um, and also, I love the detail that line. Um, Sheep's cough always sounded like a person. Um, there's a line elsewhere in the novel um, that describe it, a field of sheep as a field of ghosts. Um, and animals in this book I think are sort of ghosts, so they can be quite ghostly presences. It's as though they're, they're in some sort of afterlife together. When she's, when she's around them, their presence isn't their comforting, but it's not it's not a full presence, or it's not it's not a Dog is these are full presence, but there's something a little bit spectral or, or ghostly about all of them, for instance. Um, do you think of, I mean, I think of dogs as much a character as any of the human beings in the book, and do you think some of them as ghosts as well? Ooh, that's a nice idea. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I suppose um, for me, the, the sheep were kind of, um, they're not animals that I have a particular affinity with. Um, I sort of tried to get to know them a bit more when I was researching. Um, I went and stayed in a sheep farm on the Welsh borders and 
and I could see um, the sheep farmers having these great relationships with their sheep as if they were mm-hmm. uh, sounding like an uppercase, <laughs> as if they were dogs, um, as if that's the thing. Um, but, um, but for me, I, I couldn't quite get it, and for me, it was um, they're almost a vehicle for guilt, so Jake worries about them a lot. She worries about the fact that they can't um, explain to her if they're hurt or they're sick or what's going on and she can't explain back to them why they have to have their tails docked or that everything is going to be okay or, or explain that the thing that's killing them is not something that she's done to them. I think, it, I think people, especially very solitary people, can get um, really caught up in the imagined um, personalities of animals. Um, yeah, personal experience maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's, you create this extraordinary atmosphere of stillness um, in that place in the way that change of wind, the feathering, the top of the landing, those kinds of details that, that can be so um, seismic if they're the only thing that's happening in your, in your sphere. I mean, do you, as you're writing, are you, I mean, it's, it's so, it's wonderfully undramatic in a way, but do you, do you ever find yourself reaching for a dramatic moment and then have to stop or is it? Um, I think I sort of I sort of grew up reading a lot of horror stories and and I sort of I always love the middle parts of them where it's like there's creepy stuff happening and you don't know why. And then it's always disappointing when um, for example in, in Stephen King's It when when the terrifying clown it turns out it's an alien spider that you kill by pushing it over. So, <laughs> so I always feel like the like you know, in that example, um, a lone balloon is terrifying, but a big spider that you, that feeds off fear is less terrifying. And I think that that's what interests me, like not having to um, not having to explain yourself. Like in in life, something terrifying might happen, and you don't get the gratification of of seeing the Indian spider. Yeah. So. I was terrified earlier when I heard the shrieking and I was sort of peregrine falcon. Yeah, one of us suddenly disappeared. Um, uh, I want to ask you both a little bit about um, place because I think you both have a really interesting um, relationship to it. Somewhat kind of paradoxical because um, I mean, this character, Jake, is very much um, drawn back into a past that also geographically draws her away from Britain comes to that nice moment where where's Wigan? You know, I mean, I think we can all, I hope there's all from Wigan here tonight, but um, it, it does conjure a sense of that place. But um, maybe in, in, particularly in, in Europa as well, um, I think you're writing from a slightly different perspective on London, as I mentioned, but. Do you, do you find it easier to write about a place when you're not there? Does it crystallise it? And do you, does your imaginative, does the space of your um, work change as you move around? Uh, I'm not quite sure what you mean by that last bit. Yeah. I, <laughs> like, do, do I can you answer the rest. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, in a funny way, I do find it easier to write about, um, about London, since then, that's the place mm-hmm. that uh, I sort of tend to write about. Um, when when I'm not there, uh, well, that's a pattern that's emerged. I've done probably the best writing about London that I have done when I'm not there. Um, when I started writing London, in the southeast, I was still living in Belgium, um, so there was a gap there which uh, 
is, uh, is, is kind of helpful. And uh, obviously, you wrote about Rotor and Hungary um, as well as most of spring. Um, and I, I don't know why that is quite, I mean, maybe because when you're writing about a place, you're not really, you're, you're writing about your own version of the place rather than the place itself, if you see what I mean. Um, and your own version of the place sort of seems real, it seems more intense if you're not actually in the place, if, if you before you sort of have to refer to all your memories of it and the associations that you have with it and whatever. And a kind of nostalgia as well. Um, if you're looking at a place where you've spent most of your life and which has such rich associations and such kind of deep, um, uh, where you have such deep roots and uh, you're looking at it from a distance, it has everything sort of tinged with a kind of nostalgia of distance and that, that sort of heightens the imaginative engagement with the place in a way. So, yeah, I mean, strangely enough, it, it is, does seem to be the case for me anyway. Um, maybe also because when you're there, you have almost too much information about the place. Mm-hmm. You're always sort of having fresh observations and fresh sort of experiences of it that you might be tempted to sort of use. And, and I don't know, I don't know it's, uh, it seems more intense, the, the imaginative experience of the place where you're going. I find what my second part was. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that's not good. Okay. <laughs> what David said, um, I think I can um, get really bogged down in, in the sort of factual uh, elements of, of writing about a place that is in front of you. Like, it's a bit like over-researching mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. Like, you look at it and, and it's not exactly how you've written it down, so you get stuck with that and you can't get into the sort of more creative part of writing. Um, I think um, a lot of my writing initially the vast amount of it starts set in Australia. Um, this one kind of came back to England a bit more, but I think a lot of it comes from sort of um, feeling homesickness. Um, my mother's Australian, and I've, I've sort of always felt roots in Australia, and I've, I've lived out there on and off not for very long, but that's never quite felt like home. But when I'm here, it, which does feel like home now, I think I, I do miss Australia a lot, and I think there's a um, there's an interesting sort of space that that creates to to write about place. Exactly, it feels to me like this island is in some ways a physical embodiment of wildlands. It's the it's the space in between um, Britain and Australia. Yeah, Isle of Wight's in the middle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> My joke is that. I think I think this place in particular. Um, I I spent also quite a lot of time on the Isle of Wight as a child. So I suppose really for me, place is about um, vivid memories that you pick up in childhood and, and the kind of um, the feelings that. Um, sort of start from there, um, I, that tends to be where I, I write from, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't want to, I hope this won't come out as a reductive question, but I think one of the things that's really interesting, I think, is that for, for two writers who have um, such a lot of lyricism in your prose, you often can gravitate sometimes towards characters who um, are very few words, or people who've done, it's, their, their main mode of expression is not verbal. Um, they can be very eloquent with their bodies and they can be very eloquent with their physicality. 
um, Jake is um, a character who I think just the, the starring on her back is very eloquent of her past. But, um, and, and her observations internally, are, like we just heard, are very delicate. But, but not, doesn't speak a lot, doesn't say a great deal, and maybe to dog. But, um, are you, do you gravitate? Do you, do you, is there something, is there a joy or is there, is there a challenge in, in finding a voice or giving a voice to people who may not have much of one in their social world? Is there something new? Uh, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, um, I think there's a, if, if I tend to write about people who are on their own, um, you know, apart from a dog or whatever. Um, and so, I mean, I know that when I'm on my own, I, I talk to myself quite a lot um, about kind of just crap and being interesting. And I think when you're writing, you have to kind of, you have to pick and choose the, the, the dialogue that you show. And so, I guess in my head, she maybe is a little bit more chatty, but not to anyone else. Um, and it's, it's about internalising stuff that she doesn't say that loud and kind of goes inward um, and and maybe you know different ways of having conversations with the landscape that involve farming it and involve kind of being in it in um, maybe in, in weathers that other people wouldn't go out in so hail and stuff um, that makes any sense like mm. interacting with it in, in a slightly different way because she doesn't interact with people so much Oh, glad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I, I don't know. I mean, um, in Europa, the, the sort of central character is Bolash, who's obviously the um, least talkative character in, in the story. It's true. Um, I, I think I was, I made him the, the central character. I think, well, I didn't decide to. It was just what's the central character? Um, because in a way, he's the most peripheral character. Um, so it was just a way of seeing, I guess, quite a lurid situation um, from an angle, from an unfamiliar angle. Um, but, yeah. I, mean, I don't know, generally speaking, if am I am well, my characters really not talking to them? No, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I didn't want to say all of them, but I just think that, that it just there's an interesting link. I think that what as a reader, what I often find really um, uh, extraordinary is the way that I mean, there's 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 such um, there's a lot of spiraling going on inside a very basically serious, particularly Bolash. I mean, that's characteristic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he's he's uh, someone who just can't really say anything. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's very much um, smitten. With, with the character who they bring across in a sort of escort yeah. capacity, and he's unable to in any way. Well, because this situation is absurd, and yeah. on one level, I mean, on one level, it's a sort of grotesque, comic situation that he's in. Um, mm-hmm. And so, his, when I, I, when I don't know if anyone else is, but I'm quite alive to the complicated situation yeah. in Europa, um, and his sort of, sort of taciturn. Nature is, is part of the comedy in a way. Yes, it's part of the absurdity of the situation. Um, there's, there's a great bit when um, there's a moment when she comes in to talk to him and he's reading Harry Potter 
and uh, she says, how is it? And he said, it's good. And, and there's this and conversation. Said, and he said, it's okay. Oh, it's okay. So I'm good with Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> but but there's, a, there's a moment of when she's trying to like, engage in the conversation, and it's this, that's as far as I yeah, go. And that's it. And it's kind of... We've all been there, so that's yeah. <laughs> in the second half, actually, because maybe the thing is that I know the second half, which is right. the uh-huh. and uh, and then they, they do talk. The second half is them talking mostly, so maybe that's why. Oh, I see. Yes. In my mind, that I have a slightly different picture. Okay. Because you, 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 I haven't seen the second bit. Yeah. The first bit was good enough, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I wanted to ask you about the, the issue and what this all, how this all been. Um, I mean, have you, has it been a long-standing um, thing that you, you grew up wanting to be a novelist, or did you, did you come to it quite late, or is it being uh, a best young novelist, is that something that you ever thought that accolades that I wanted to achieve? Yeah, I mean, it's great. And yeah, I mean, I, I guess when I was at school and university, I, I wanted to be a writer. But then I sort of dropped that for a while in my twenties and didn't really uh, I didn't buy anything basically between the age of early twenties and, and late twenties actually. Um and then I came back to it through writing a few little radio dramas for the BBC and then um, yeah, I just sort of started. That's quite a big um, coming back to it. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, we had one to be a writer and uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I was just lucky. I, I had a friend who worked in the radio drama department mm-hmm. and who knew that I used to write and um, and I'd written plays in university which mm-hmm. suggested that I might like to I, I guess I must have already been thinking about starting writing the drums about it. So that I, I wrote something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that this is taking the form of sort of several short novellas and that I mean, is, do you find that novelist is something that, you know, you want to sort of expand a little bit or try to Yeah, well, I mean, we were talking about the novel today in the sort of discussion group that, that, we, that we had here, and um, there, was, there seems to be a general sense of sort of anxiety and or not, you know, basic sort of anxiety in the discussion. For in some quarters, I certainly, you know, myself, um, about the, the sort of future and fate and general sort of standing of the literary novel in particular at the moment. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, and then in a sense that somehow um, Marcel, who, who made the publication today, um, called very strongly for some sort of attempt to, I guess, reinvent the novel um, in, a, in, a, in a sort of radically or, or you know, just do something interesting with the form um, rather than just keep making finally versions of, of, what, of what exists already now. And uh, I mean, I, the trouble with that is, you know, I, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> so um, it's, it's a kind of a really incremental process. So that's why for this one, I've, I've written what I'm going to write, a series of um, shorter narratives, which are very different dynamic. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, a little, it's a little step away from from, from writing novels, because I do feel sort of uneasy with the literary novels. I'm not quite sure why, but um, mm. it's, uh, it, it, there does seem to be some issue. Isn't it? 
he knew and um, this level um, formally is quite interesting you can it's the the um, chronology here is inverted so there's a kind of um, movement through time that even though the novel is um, on the face of it uh, in some ways a, a realistic novel that proceeds in a way that um, with, as um, as with David's novels um, a kind of um, a richness to the to the um, the world that you're imagining so it's not it's not experimental in an obvious joy-seeing way, but in a very underlying way, there's also this quite interesting, um, I think a little bit like they describing about incremental tweaking of the form and, and finding the direction. Was that something that just grew out of the process of, did you, did you um, rewrite this character until actually she, she's going backwards, she's not going forwards? Um, it happens that clearly you're going to have to about um, 60,000 words and sort of was, had started more or less in the middle and worked downwards and I kind of knew what the story was. I knew that it was something about uh, repressing memories, or, or not really repressing memories, but, but knowing that there was a memory in your head that you didn't want to deal with. Mm. Um, and and, and my, there's, a, there's a scene in the book where um, a friend teaches her this method that, that my mum used to, I used to have night terrors and my mum used to kind of say what you need to do is visualise two halves of your brain and imagine you're walking down the centre of your brain <laughs> <laughs> and there are doorways um, on either side and you've got the keys to all of the doors and if you're in a room where something terrible is happening come out the door and you lock it and you go into another door and something else is going on. Um, and, and I took that very, very literally. <laughs> <laughs> so I took that incredibly literally and would like would worry about like, you know, which doors, how many doors have I got left? And, <laughs> but, but I think um, <laughs> But I think I, I must have got about um, about halfway through writing it and um, just felt like there was there was a better way of telling the story and that's why it sort of it's almost like it sort of folded over in itself. Um, and it, it became incredibly complicated. I'm very bad at maths and, and the last sort of four or five chapters became like some horrible maths problem to solve. But back to the future. Yeah, yeah, and sort of where does that start and has that already happened or you know, so it's a bit of it. So um, but I think I think ultimately um, there's something quite uh, something I find quite useful about trying to solve a problem like that at, at that stage of writing that kind of you, you sort of take the focus off the writing for a little bit and then it sort of happens a bit more naturally and but yeah, it was only there um, because it felt like it had to be, not because I set out to write something that was sort of all over the place. Mm. I have to ask you, and um, it's just um, something that strikes me, is that um, the, there's an appearance, quite disturbing appearance, of a shark in this book. And um, also in the first book there, there's a shark that appears. And I, I, I thought that the recurrence of that had um, possibly had, and talking about memory and things that sort of come through memory and surprise you very maybe, and also animals being particularly significant in your work. I mean, a shark is a scene that you return to in Paris. 
Well, you know. No, no. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I had a I had a shark phobia when I was small, hence the night terrors, etc. Um, but I, I think shark phobias are things that a lot of people who live in London have for some reason. It's like the sharks are nowhere near you, but like you know, as a nine-year-old, sort of having a bath became this kind of like, well, what is going to come up at Really. Yeah, and, and yeah, and, and you kind of um, you have to have your feet tucked under you if you're on a chair, stuff like that. Really? <laughs> wow. Yeah, I don't think I even thought of the toilet, but I think it it it's sort of for me it's my kind of um, it's probably the first time that I had a a, a fear with a face, if you know what I mean. Like, mm-hmm. I could sort of go back to the thing that I'm scared of. That's frightening. And, um, and I've, si- I've since come to terms with sharks and I love them. <laughs> but, um, but I think in writing, I'm, I'm interested in fear and I'm interested in, I'm really interested in sharks and that they're something that we project so much into. Mm-hmm. That, you know, people living in Peckham can be like, oh my god. What about the tiger sharks? They're going to get us. Um, and and this idea that that sharks have a uh, the way that people think they they want to kill you and hurt you, uh, whereas you know all they want to do is feed. You, know, you might as well be a fish or you know a dead cow in the sea or something. They're just they're just eating, and that's what they do. Um, so that that sort of Partly where the interest in shark com- sharks come from. I sort of, I've been trying to. I always take out more sharks. I always take sharks out of my book. I, I write too many sharks in the book in the first draft, and I kind of want it to be more shark centric. And they're always getting away. So um, at the moment, I'm working on a bit of graphic memoir with um, an illustrator friend, um, and it's about it's it's sort of about having that and growing up between um, Peckham and um, Chukai Farm in Australia where there were sharks. Um, so it's sort of, I think that's my venting of sharks. And, and I do hope one day to write a novel that is about a shark attack. <laughs> Get there. Um, do you, is there a shark equivalent? Is there something that you consciously have to, is there a whole something novel? Uh, is something you have to edit out? Maybe this is just me, but reading your books before I came, some of my last questions, and I want to open it up to the audience. Um, I was, there's a story that in your um, first novel, I think we were talking on the way here, a um, list of pub names, and it's this kind of um, centrifugal spinning, and, and there are these nice dissonances and connections between the pub names. And pub names are such evocative things, mm. and it becomes a sort of song of all the different pub names. And perhaps as I was reading it in, in juxtaposition, rereading, you're not reading, um, and all of that amazing kind of bird song, which is a bit like you were saying with sharks, it's sort of just a mixture of um, there's something useful about it, but it's also quite scary. Really. Um, I suppose if there's a question there, it's were those sections, was that fun to write, and was that, I mean, do you, um, is there, is, is that one of the, I suppose, one of the joys of prose that allows you that room, that's something that's really incorporated? 
Yeah, yeah, no, the, the pubs, as we were saying before, the, the pubs there was, was great, it was great fun. I, I, I spent much too long writing, I, probably, I, I got quite obsessed with it, and sort of, <laughs> like, thinking of all the pubs that I could, but I actually got out a phone book, <laughs> the yellow pages, and looked under pubs to make sure I hadn't missed any you know, brilliant names like it's on my work in. Um, and yeah, no, one of the reasons it was so enjoyable was, as you said, because it was, um, it was, you know, it was playful. It was, uh, it really felt like, and that is one of the beautiful things which you can do with, uh, with any kind of writing, really. But, um, just do something really playful, play a game with it, which you hope that the reader would also be able to get into and enjoy. And, um, and if they do, then it doesn't come in that you could cut the glasses from that novel, and you know, it's not essential to, to anything. So, in a way, they have to get into it and enjoy it, otherwise, it's completely redundant. But, the other side of that is, if they do enjoy it, then it doesn't matter that it's redundant, you know, they, because it's fun for everybody. No, it's just great. Yeah, you enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah. Alright, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe at that point I can open it up to the audience, because I don't be shy. Okay. I'm going to start. Yeah. Uh, can I ask Evie about um, Jake and men, and women who aren't men, but who sometimes might not identify as women? Um, do, you, do you find kind of, um, is there something about gender and particularly women and their ambivalence about their own gender that fascinates you? Yeah, I think um, it's funny actually. I, I think of Jake as a totally um, a name, as a as a man's name or a woman's name. I, it's never occurred to me that it's particularly masculine. Um, but it's funny in all the reviews, it's sort of Jake brackets a woman. <laughs> <laughs> but and, and I suppose my my first book um, was written in a male voice, um, which also was very natural to me. <coughs> it was the story that came out and the voice that came out. Um, and I suppose um, I suppose I am really interested in gender in that um, I'm a woman and and I have a very, very masculine Australian um, side of the family, very macho, um, who, when I'm with them, treat me as if I'm a delicate flower, and um, which is quite frustrating um, and quite strange. And when I'm uh, with my English family, I'm sort of a lot of thing, you know, around a person. And um, and so I suppose, and also uh, I was talking um, in an interview last night with um, someone who's asking a lot about adolescence, and I I think there's a really interesting um, thing that if you're an awkward, um, large-ish woman, um, if when you're sort of, I don't know, 15, 16, when you're, when you're kind of maybe sexually naive and, and you don't quite know how to talk to boys and stuff, it, it can be incredibly strange because part of you wants to be one of the blokes and part of you wants to be kind of um, very female. And it's just, a, it's an, I always felt very kind of separate from myself as, a, as an adolescent. Um, and I, I, it's not something that I've kind of got an answer for, 
but I, it is something I really enjoy examining because it's so awful. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also, so, you know, I think it. I think it's nice when people don't follow their um, the sort of grooves, and when they when they kind of think, well, you know, I don't like pink. I like, you know, boots and black and. So I'm just describing what I'm wearing. <laughs> but but it, I like I like the I like the problems of gender, I suppose, um, and the funny spaces, the the funny. Um, it's it's too difficult to talk about without massive in the end. I was going to say the way things run up and it's you know what I mean. <laughs>
But so that in that sense, they could have been, you know, Poles or, or indeed French, Germans, whatever. But um, they, they are very specifically Hungarians in, in the, the characters themselves, I hope, would be, um, would be sort of convincing Hungarians to my Hungarian friends, although we'll have to see whether, whether that is the case or not. This is for Amy. How do you find the process of working on a graphic memoir different than working on a novel or collaborating with somebody else? It's really interesting. It's um, There's something really nice about giving up control of it. Um, and um, he hasn't seen my, um, he hasn't been to my family's place in Australia, but he has looked at sort of hundreds and hundreds of photographs, old photographs. Um, so he's got this really strange, like, he's got the atmosphere of the place and he's got sort of the structures, but things are in the wrong place. And there's something really nice about that. There's something like that sort of uh, fictionalises it, fictionalises it a bit more, which makes it easier to kind of do things for the story. See what I mean? Um, it's been like, sometimes it's tricky because. Um, I mean, any kind of memoir is, is a bit odd because you're sort of like, well, it would be a lot better if we swapped these time bits around and whatever. But so there has been quite a lot of um, give and take and sort of thing. I mean, we did it in a, I don't think we did it in a way that um, most people would go about doing it. We didn't sit down and talk about it and then sort of make it together, I wrote the whole thing and then he kind of sketched out some ideas um, and then we basically, it's been a process of cutting words out more than anything else um, and with him kind of doing whole sort of double page spreads which will take like a paragraph like that and you know delete it all because it's just all shown in the drawing which is really satisfying and, and really wonderful um, so we've done a first draft, which I've just given to my agent. I've no idea if it's any good. But um, one of the other things we did is we uploaded it um, onto the internet um, and had like a Facebook group so that we could feel you know, like there was some sort of impulse to finish it. It's taken a long time, it's taken about three years. Um, and so we've had people reading it along the way, which has been... It's something that I didn't feel all that comfortable about at first, but actually it's been quite helpful to um, to feel like it's people have seen enthusiastic about it, you know, not just my mum. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. Um, Um, 
thing. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... Then, of course, you start to look at the other lists and the people who just vanished completely since they were on the list. So there's no sense, you know, that it's... Uh, it's not an... It, it is very much a sort of um, thing about promise and about, you know, it's, it's not... You, you see what I mean? So you can't really sort of sit back and say, great, I was on that list, I can, I can you know, retire, relax, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of about pushing you forward as well, in a, in a good way, though, in a, very, in a positive way. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I think, I, I think I can understand why there is, there is an element of trepidation, and I know that without naming any names or anything, I'm sure that there are people in this who feel a certain amount of, you have to fulfill this promise now. But I think um, most of the writers, I think in fact all of them, really, as fair to say, have got their own projects and their, their own work, and I think by and large it's something that they treat as um, a, a nice, um, nice, um, I suppose, um, oh God, without sounding aggrandizing for, for granted, I suppose it's a nice, um, Recognition from from um, the world that, that their work is um, funny, but it doesn't. It's not the point after which they're then going to retire and you know, don the Caribbean shirt and go, "Well, I'm done now. I'm the best." So <laughs> I think there's always that up the, there's always that um, creative unrest, the corrective desires to shift further into the um, different things, and maybe as with David was describing, um, fragmenting into shorter forms or I don't think it's, you know, we're not going to disown him if he doesn't continue um, <laughs> to write novels. You know, it's, uh, it's, I remember Harry Kinsley said to me when we were doing this is that he was always really terrified they would do a documentary of like, where are they now? And like, Harry Kinsley driving the bus. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was the best of novels in the world. He's going to buy them. Question for Evie. Um, you said you'd read horror, horror stories as a kid. Um, how did that come about? Um, I, I started off reading really crap horror stories, like point horror, when I was quite young, um, and sort of sort of got to the point that you, you kind of knew the plot before just by looking at the cover. Um, so then I came across. I think it's Silence of the Lambs was on the um, on the shelf, um, and I, I was spending the summer in a small caravan, the Isle of Wight, and I'd sleep on the floor. And the bookshelf was right next to the sleeping bag, and so I kind of would read the really gross bits of that. And it was just um, it's it's just that sort of thing of not being able to look away from from stuff that really interests me. But, but when you say it was on the shelf, um, were they your parents' shelves? Yeah. They? Yeah. So yeah. your parents were interested in horror? Um. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> they're not on everybody, they're not on every kid's bookshelves. That's, that's yeah, no. Me. I think Science of the Lambs was definitely my mum's. Um, <laughs> I don't know what that says. I don't, I don't know. I think maybe I got the Stephen King, which came after the... Like, my, my mum would buy me the point horror because she was kind of like, well, she's reading, so... so she, she enjoyed horror as well? 
No, she actually she hates it. She can't open it. Um, no one in my family likes scary stuff or thinking about bad things. Um, <laughs> so um, she then tried after like, she felt that I'd made too much point for her. She went. To, we went to Waterstones together. And my mum said, my daughter reads these awful books, can you suggest something better? And they gave me Virginia Andrews' back. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I think after that, it was, I think it was probably uh, a jump from um, embossed covers just to Stephen King. And it was just like, ooh, you know. Um, I read that one where... Um, there's a woman in the woods and she's like strapped to a bed, I can't remember what it's called. Um, and it's strapped to a bed. And it's wonderfully scary. No, but it's Gerald's um, game. Uh, it might be, yeah, when the, the husband dies. Yeah. yeah. And there's a um, <laughs> and there's a, a loom out on the lake and I didn't understand that was a bird and that was just the most frightening thing ever. <laughs> Yeah, it just seemed, it seemed like a really wonderful, um, exciting way to write. And um... there is, if I can jump in there, there is this. Um, I mean, there are these moments in the, in the new novel which are truly horrific and, and quite scary. And I mentioned, I, <laughs> I mentioned that um, in the intro that there's this scene when um, there's this kind of um, quite grim sex scene, halfway through the sex scene, and bed knocks into the wall and unleashes a bit. Um, Huntsman spiders come out from behind a, a picture frame, and it is just like the microphone. I think I dropped it. <laughs> oh God, um, I was like your brother with the toilet. I couldn't, I couldn't look at anything. Um, the, um, but that, I mean, it's interesting to think of that as a sort of um, as something that you're, I suppose, something you're reading in some way, that, that, that horror is something that is interesting for us. Well, to me, that's that's more like a joke. Right. <laughs> I think that's just really funny. Yeah, I can tell you about it. It's funny how often, when, like I was saying about how I find situations in Europe, but when something is strange, how often I find something funny in my book and everyone else thinks it's really depressing or horrible. <laughs> No, I mean, it happens quite a lot. I mean, I, I, definitely, I definitely thought that the spider thing was, was very funny afterwards. Like, after I know, you know, that was my reaction was weird and funny. But I, I think, yeah, I mean, that, that reaction is, the general, like, always depressing is weird. I don't understand. I think Spring is a very joyful book. I particularly think it's kind of cool. I mean, anyway, that's a separate conversation. But I think that um, um, light in your London it's very mm. well. Yeah. Um, anyway, sorry, that's another question. Yeah. Just, yeah, this is pretty easy. There's two questions. Um, one of them is the ghost story, the MRJ, the Shadow, and all that sort of thing. That's the, I mean, we are reading that as well. Um, so that's one question. The other question is to do with the filmmakers of it. Mm. I think you were talking about the stars of the land, it's just a book, yeah, it's a film. And as you were reading, it is a very visualizable, isn't it? I can practically see the film. I think with the with the ghost story um, element, I'm really interested in um, sort of told ghost stories rather than the kind of um, rather than written down. Um, and I love 
I love it when there's like a family ghost story and it's just really weird and it's like I woke up and there was a man in a box at the bottom of my bed like these weird specific things that you only get in kind of stories that are passed down um, verbally um, so uh, there, there are a lot of ghost stories in my family um, from the sugarcane farm and then my parents seem to think that they've seen ghosts and, and I, I don't believe in ghosts or, or you know things like that but I do believe that people see them and um, I'm just really interested in, in what they are and, and why people see them there's a um, there's a really good, great book called The Natural History of Ghosts which is just it's just examining that it's like this is not um, this is not telling you the most haunted house in Britain but it's just saying that this is the experience that this woman in the 19th century had there and it's weird and what is that um, so yeah, and I think um, I do. I think in quite a visual way um, when I'm writing. So um, it's not quite deliberately in the hope that someone will give me a film deal, but um, but it, it's just how I um, how I picture stuff. Um, I sort of feel very much like there's a camera. And, um, yeah, the reason I asked actually, if I may just enlarge on that. Sure. Is, I think there's a kind of, what should I say? I think sometimes when I'm in teaching, I sometimes think that the people I'm in teaching are almost more film literate than they are literature literate. So in fact, it's almost natural to think in terms of frame, zoom, dissolve, all that kind of thing. in books or film, I don't think. I'm quite a badly read writer. I'm, I'm very, very slow. I'm always reading something and, and you know, I strongly believe that you should you should read to be able to write, but I, I tend to find that I have read nothing that anyone else has read, um, and it's not like I have this huge library of exotic things that I read instead. I just feel like I'm always quite behind but I, I, at the same time I don't watch a lot of film um, I, think, I think I must just play imaginary games a lot or something something's <laughs> taking up a lot of time <laughs> <laughs> um, It's interesting you mentioned that though because David um, uh, uh, Smith said something in the lecture that's interesting about um, a lot of um, I don't think either of these two fall into this category but a lot of first novels have particularly in the opening kind of multi-perspective shifting quality that seems very filmic now, like moving, flashing from this point to that point and moving around the room. I think that maybe that is a generational thing that's, that's happening. I feel like there's some breaking bad influence as well, coming through a lot of stories we keep seeing, a lot of chemists. But uh, maybe we've got time for just one more question. Um. To go back to what you were both saying earlier about you know scenes that readers might find horrific or nightmarish that, that you both thought were kind of, you, know, you, you thought were funny, is there something resonant about the misapprehension you might have as the writer about a scene? You know, I think about uh, Kafka reading his stories with his friends and it's like the things that they're, they're all laughing. And, I think Kafka you know, is funny. I mean, I, I, I think it's funny and it's horrific. And that combination of that, does that sort of 
create an extra layer. You know, you were saying you, you dropped the book. Is there something about when you were writing it, you thought it was funny, but that someone else responds in a different way? Does that create a sort of, um, th does that somehow give an added punch to that, to, to those moments in, in, in the writing, do you think? Or?